0: All right, a very good evening, everyone. It's lovely to see you all tonight. Uh, We're going to be carrying on with our series in the signs and wonders of Jesus in the book of John uh, under the subtitle, again, of Reasons to Believe. And so I hope that you have come expectant uh, tonight, that you are expecting the Lord to meet with us. Um, Martin, thank you for for leading us with your team. Uh, Thank you for praying for us. And so I'd like to start off right away by asking the question, what does it look like to miss the point? I'm sure there's many wives here, both this evening and even this morning, who have got concise examples that their husbands would prefer to not hear. And there are many teachers in our own church who can humor us with examples of students completely abandoning all logic in how they answer their tests and assignments. But what about miracles? What does it look like to miss the point of the miracles of Jesus? Well, Bill Johnson, pastor of Bethel Church, uh, in his book, When Heaven Invades Earth, a practical guide to a life of miracles, says that Jesus became a model for all who would Im- embrace the invitation to invade the impossible in his name. He performed miracles, wonders, as, and signs as a man in right relationship to God, not as God. If he performed miracles because he was God, then these would be unattainable for us, but if he did them as a man, then I am responsible to pursue his lifestyle. Recapturing this simple truth changes everything, and it makes a full restoration of the ministry of Jesus in his church possible. So what exactly does this ministry of Jesus look like in Bethel Church? Well, in years past, many congregations, historic Christianity, would find themselves reading the creeds and confessions during their services, often uh, Creeds like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, before taking communion, before allowing others into membership, and other specific times. And Bethel recites uh, one of their own four readings that they have come up with before they take their offering before special events. And so I'd like to open by reading this. This is offering reading number two from their website. As we receive today's offering, we are believing you, God, for heaven opened earth invaded, storehouses unlocked, miracles created, dreams and visions, angelic visitations, declarations, impartations, and divine manifestations, anointing, gifts, calls, positions, promotions, provisions, and resources to go to the nations, souls and more souls from every generation, saved and set free, carrying kingdom revelation. Thank you, Father, that as I join my value system to yours, You will show favor, blessing, and increase upon me, so that I have more than enough to co-labor with heaven and to see Jesus get his full reward. Hallelujah. So what does it look like to miss the point of Jesus' miracles? Well, to many, those statements are simply part of Christianity, what a church somewhere in America is reading during their times of their services. But in reality, what we see here is in one short statement from a pastor, and in one small book that he has written, what it looks like to completely destroy Orthodox Christianity within your church and then to sell it to the masses. Now, Bethel and Bull have bravely put their theology out there into the wild, and so it's easy to critique. But what about us? How about us? If we evaluated our own testimonies, would our thoughts on suffering and trials, our understanding of the miracles of Jesus, our views of Scripture... Our goals as Christians this side of heaven, and dare I say it, even the point of our salvation, would we be any less guilty of this? Would we be any less guilty of missing the point? Isn't it true that we're far quicker to pray for an easy life than to persevere in the one that God has for us? To expect God to remove our sinfulness while not committing ourselves to the killing of our flesh. To expect blessings from God, but not to walk faithfully with God. To expect to grow in our faith, but to not be faithful in the disciplines of reading Scripture, meditating on the Word, taking of communion, witnessing of baptism, attending of church, and praying to the Lord. And even more so, even to struggle, to ask God to help us to not struggle with anxiety and doubt without submitting ourselves to the difficult process of trusting the Lord. So maybe we're not a church, and maybe we're not Christians who would find ourselves reading statements that demand that God bless us as long as we align our value system with His. But if we're honest, does what we believe about God and even this life that we're living in show that perhaps we too have missed the point of Jesus' miracles? And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And this evening, we're going to be working through the whole chapter, 41 verses, um, but we're not going to have time to be able to unpack the entire chapter. So we're going to really dive in and out of specific sections, and they're going to be up on the, board, up on the, the screens behind me. Um, but I'd encourage you this week, even perhaps this evening, if you have the time, to read through the whole chapter, to be able to use John chapter 9 in your own uh, quiet times, and I think it will be a real blessing. So, I'm just going to summarize the first few verses before we go into the whole chapter. And right at the start of chapter 9, we find Jesus passing by. And John uses quite flippant language here. Jesus passes by a man who was blind from birth. And Jesus' own disciples, whose theology of sickness had gotten a little bit wonky, they asked Jesus a question Who sinned, this man or his parents, because he was born sick? Now, Jewish thinking at the time understood that when sin entered the world, sickness entered through that sin. But they were asking themselves the question, what on earth would you have had to have done in order to have been born with a sickness? And this gets them to bring up this man's parents. Perhaps it was his parents that sinned so poorly that this man was affected. And Jesus responds that it wasn't him, it wasn't his parents. Nothing like that caused this man to be sick. But rather, as we read in verse 3... That the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, hearing that this evening, especially if you're an unbeliever here tonight, some people might be tempted to ask the question, How can God make someone sick so that he can then show off with a miracle? And if that's your question tonight, it's a legitimate question. And I just want to read something that one of the commentators say which is helpful. Uh, This is by F.F. Bruce. He points out that this does not mean that God made the child suffer blindness for years so that he may reveal his greatness. Rather, God overruled the disaster of this child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by the recovering of his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Jesus then adds about this man's sickness that the works of God in about the works of God in verse 4 and 5 and he says we must do the works of God or the ESV says we must work the works of God while it is still day for night is coming when no one can work but as long as I am in the world I am the light of the world and this sets the stage for this evening where we have this incredible miracle this brings us to our first focus point tonight, which is from verse 6 to verse 12, where we see the powerful work of Christ's light. And here we have a man who has never known light, never known it. In his whole life, all he's ever experienced is darkness. He has never seen his mother's face or his friend's smiles, maybe a beautiful sunset, or even perhaps someone who would have had pity on him while begging and giving him change. He had never seen green grass or flowering plants or trees He had never known that his clothes were perhaps different colors and not just different textures. He had never known thunderclouds. He had never known anything. And yet across from him, he simply hears a man exclaiming out loud to another group, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. These next few moments must have been incredible, both confusing and very humbling silence from the crowd, as a man walks up to him and spits on the ground and rubs something over his eyes and then says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now put yourself in his shoes for a moment. You get up, you pick up your cane, and you begin to walk over to where you know the pool is. Maybe you stumble over a couple of other beggars, maybe some people even bump you out the way and mock you, and maybe even kick your feet on uneven pathways. Eventually, the man gets to the pool, and he leans down, and he washes his face, with something which, no doubt, he had done thousands of times. But this time, something different, something bright, something sharp. He sees his hands, he sees the pool, he sees the water, maybe even sees his reflection. And he stands up and looks around, and he sees other beggars, and he sees those around the pool. And no doubt, he would have looked for the one who healed him. Imagine his shock and his utter amazement. How do you even begin to process sight for the first time? How do you process that sound comes from a face? How do you process that men and women look different? How do you process that clothing comes in different colors and not just different textures and fabrics? How does he process the money he was given while begging, as some of it is shiny and bright and others would have been dull and scratched? And you can imagine this man simply dropping his cane, running straight home to his family, bursting in through the door and shouting, I can see! How would you respond when someone who has a very real and unsolvable problem is suddenly made completely well? Or we read the response of the people who lived near him in verses 8 to 9. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, and others said, no, it only looks like him. But he himself said, I am The man. Not only was it difficult to convince them that he had previously been blind, but even more so, equally difficult for him to convince them on how on earth it happened. Look with me at verses 10 to 11. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and to wash. And so I went and washed. And then I could see. Now, not to beat the same drum over and over here, but to think about missing the point, we might be tempted to try and become overly logical when we read about miracles, when we see this sort of thing happening in Scripture. But friends, the truth is that Jesus really does heal. God does bring healing even today. And we heard of that this evening so wonderfully. What an incredible miracle. What do you think when you read this? What do you think when you hear testimonies like we did this evening of Pippa's miracle that God has done a wonderful work in her? Perhaps to go to what we would consider slightly less flamboyant, what do we think of the miracle of salvation? Well, what we see next is a good example of what it looks like to miss the point. And so in the second place, we see the debate over Christ's light And in this section, we're going to see three separate interrogations, and this is from verses 13 all the way to verse 34, but we're going to summarize it very briefly. The first interrogation is of the man by a religious group, the Pharisees, who lose all focus and have a mini meltdown around the fact that Jesus would dare to heal on the Sabbath. They come to him, and they talk about the miracle, questioning him about what happened, and then they get all wrapped up and miss the point. The second interaction happens when these religious leaders skip the man and decide to go and try and poke holes in his testimony by visiting his parents. Their questions were so intense and so aggravating that his parents were so concerned that they would lose their access to God and to their church, to their temple, that they rather say in verse 21, he now sees. We don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, for he will speak for himself." Now, just a quick point here. This man, when going home to his family, clearly spoke so well that the neighbors understood what was going on. So how much more so would his parents have known? How amazing is it that in their own son's life, they come to the point where he has explained that someone healed him. How amazing is it that when they hear of this one who can heal, But when they are confronted with something which produces fear, they claim to be ignorant of what happened, and they deny God. Friends, if we're ashamed of the God who saves us, then when the world comes knocking and bashing on our doors as Christians for answers about the reason why we believe what we do, if we are then tempted to, and even do, turn away from God, deny God, then we should expect the words of Jesus in Matthew 10 to be true. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. If this has been you, and you have been someone who has denied God due to fear, the fear of the world, then can I encourage you with the last interrogation? This last interrogation happens again with the man, and we see some of the most incredible dialogue in all of Scripture here in this passage. The religious leaders come to this man and they try everything. They literally use every tool in the belt to try and get him to fall apart with his story. They first come and they accuse Jesus of being an evildoer and not being from God. And then the man responds, well, I don't know who he was, but all I know is that I was blind, but now I can see. Then they decide to re-question him about how Jesus healed him. And then he responds, well, I've told you that before. And, oh, are you asking so that you can also become a follower of him? And in their anger, they try to then claim. Uh, sorry, in their anger, they then try to claim the theological high ground. Well, we're the disciples of Moses, and we know that God spoke to Moses. Kind of like a bit of a theological tongue pointing from children. This man simply responds, "Well, God would never allow sinners like you and me to do this work, right? But Jesus opened my eyes, which seems to be a work of God." And please, I'm paraphrasing this. In a sense, he's saying to them, wow, even the disciples of Moses don't seem to understand how God works. Isn't that amazing? And in their rage, these religious leaders ban the man from the temple, and in their minds, they remove his access to God. And we see their words in verse 34. You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Now, in something similar to a Disney movie, We see a blind man who can see, a family who out of fear puts blindfolds on themselves, and a group of religious leaders whose approach to fact-finding is to ban everyone carrying a torch at night. It's just ridiculous. Read with me from verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, notice the similarity to verse 1, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. St. John Chrysostom shares beautifully on these words. The Jews cast him out of the temple, and the Lord of the temple found him. When Jesus came to the man for a second time, it was also to do a miracle, but this time a miracle of eternal value. The first time Jesus came to the man, he entered into his darkness and he gave him sight. This time Jesus enters into his spiritual darkness and he gives him spiritual sight. Isn't it amazing that in the Pharisees' mind they remove his access to God And yet God incarnate removes his spiritual blindness and gives him full eyes of faith. Church family, the point of the miracles of Jesus is that we would know Jesus. So if that's the point then, why do some people who witnessed these miracles still remain blind? And that brings us to our last point, which is where we're going to camp out for a time in verses 39 to verse 41. And that is the reason some people see the light. Jesus says in verse 39, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. The man we find here was not a good man. The Pharisees were right about one thing, and that this man was born in utter sin. He was a rebel against the very God who created him. And in that sense, his blindness from birth is a perfect picture of your and my spiritual blindness from our birth. We're reminded in Psalm 51 verse 5, In sin did my mother conceive me? And Jeremiah reminds us in 17 verse 9, That our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand them? Paul even explains that in our sinfulness we become worthless because we pursue everything but God and our hearts are darkened against the things of God because we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. But not only this man, but even the Pharisees, not only this man, but even the Pharisees, In their correctness about this man, they missed the point about themselves. They completely missed the boat. They assume that their religious state has somehow earned them favor with God and that they weren't even as sinful as this healed beggar. See, the difference between this blind man and the Pharisees wasn't their salvation, although the Pharisees would have us believe it was. Jesus' words capture it perfectly. Listen again. For judgment I have come into the world so that those who do not see may see. And those who do see, if you want to look at the wording a little bit, those who claim to see may become blind. The difference was that when this blind man met Jesus, God's light was shone into his heart, and he was given a new heart, and he believed in Jesus, and he worshipped. When the Pharisees had the same Jesus confront them with the same miracle, with the same light, they proudly and sarcastically comment in verse 41, are we also blind? And Because of their pride, they remain blinded, unable to see that Jesus' own words to them are actually words of condemnation. Because you say, we see, your guilt remains. So here in this passage, we find a man who had never known light receiving spiritual sight, but more importantly, receiving salvation, not just the ability to see Jesus, And those who had claimed to have light and sight all along than the Pharisees? Well, see, in fact, that not only were they blind, but indeed they hated the light. But how about us here this evening? How have you responded to the miracle-working light of this world? How have you responded to Jesus when he has shone the light of the gospel on your heart and revealed that, in fact, your heart, like mine, like the Pharisees and like this previously blind man, It's full of sin and rebellion against God. Jesus' words here are as applicable to us as they were to the people then. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, can I ask you to consider these things? This story is not meant to be a Disney-like story of healing the blind, a cowardly family, and a group of doubters proven wrong. John records this so that you and I would know that this same Jesus who claimed to create the world in John 1 now is able to bring the power of creation back when he rubs mud on a man's eyes and restores his sight. But even so much more when he shines the gospel light into this man's heart and he calls him to believe. This same Jesus is offering life and light to each person here He is the all-powerful God who is able to bring a dead soul back to life, but even to heal the eyes of the sick. The work of Jesus, and it's something we're going to look at in a moment, this work of Jesus wasn't simply to come and offer salvation. It was to accomplish salvation. We see John say in John chapter 6, verses 37 to 39, recording Jesus' words, All that the Father gives me will come to me. That is a statement we cannot ignore in Scripture. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So the appropriate question for our own hearts then this evening is, do you see the light? Do you hear the voice of Jesus calling out to you to abandon your sin, to abandon all hope of being good enough like the Pharisees, and to believe in him alone for your salvation? If God has rubbed over your own eyes and has given you sight to see Jesus for who he is, then can I ask, what are you waiting for? What chance are you waiting for to respond? If your response this evening is like this man's, that you have seen Jesus clearly and you want to respond like he did with belief and worship, can I ask that you would just stay behind and speak to one of the elders after the service? But if you're a believer here this evening, then I want to call your mind back to verse four to the start of our chapter where Jesus starts with these words, We must do the work of him who sent me while it is day. Leon Morris, a commentator, says that Jesus is not speaking only of what he must do, but rather what his followers share with him, the responsibility of doing what God directs. The word must reminds us that this work is not simply what is advisable or expedient or helpful, this work of God does not originate from here on earth. These are heaven-sent works that we must do. And there is also an urgency about doing them, for we won't always have this opportunity. And what are these works? Well, as Bill Johnson writes, is Bethel right, that we are to partner with Jesus in being miracle-working people? Well, Jesus says in John chapter 6, verses 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him Whom he has sent this is the work of god that you believe in him whom he has sent if you're a born again believer here this evening then you have a responsibility to partner with god in the work of god if you're a believer here this evening then you have the responsibility to prioritize to put aside all things which would hinder you in using your gifting to take heart to be strong in the lord to walk lives in the spirit and to make disciples, to see people come to know Christ. The New Testament makes clear for us as well that the context of this is within the New Testament church, within your own local church. Friends, even for us as a church, for years now, Honey Ridge has had an ongoing plea for a greater involvement from its members and adherents in the discipleship and the disciple-making ministries of the church. Can I encourage you this evening... If you, are a, if you are not a member here at the church, take up membership. Get yourself accountable to a group of fellow Christians and begin serving and doing the works of God. Jesus has given you and every single other Christian work to do. Isn't it going to be incredible? And I'm going to word this rather from the negative, which I'm more prone to. I'm going to word it from the positive because I really trust that the Lord is going to do this. So isn't it going to be incredible when we see the young adults serving in the church with faithfulness and maturity. When the young parents step up to lead the very ministries that their children are serving or that their children are attending. When the middle-aged families use their life stage and experience to encourage and disciple young families. When the elderly are speaking into the into the matters of the church with wisdom and maturity. When the men are stepping up to fill the shoes of the shoes of so many fatherless homes in our church. And when the women are discipling other women and caring for children with our parents. Jesus' words here are not a guilt trip. They're an invitation to be blessed by doing the works of God and not to miss the points of his miracles. Jesus says we must work the works of him while it is still day. Earlier, I read Bill Johnson's words and his church's statements, which bring to light their understanding of miracles. And I hope by now in this series, and my prayer that even tonight, that we will see what a right focus does when we look at the miracles of Jesus and what that meant, what that's meant to bring in our lives, to take us from darkness into light. And instead of ending while well, fo- ending and focusing on this. Uh, this text or, or what, these, uh, what this author has said, what this pastor has said, and what their church believes, I want us to rather end by reading the Nicene Creed as a prayer offering and a declaration from our church this evening. And I want us to notice something, is that this creed doesn't leave out that God is a miracle-working God. In fact, it highlights it. It doesn't say that God no longer delights in caring for His children by meeting their practical needs. It doesn't undo the supernatural. It doesn't limit God. It doesn't put God in a box. Rather, what it does do is it summarizes Scripture's amazing and glorious revelation about God. And so this evening, I want, to, I want us to just focus in on these words. This is the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all visible of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and he suffered and was buried. The third day, and he rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified and he spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. Church family, this evening, as we look at the light of this world, let us not miss the points of Jesus' miracles. Jesus came to point us to the Father who has preordained that we will be saved. He came to die on the cross in our place so that we would be saved. And Jesus and the Father promised that the Holy Spirit will come in order to be that effective worker in our hearts so that we might be saved. Let us commit ourselves to the Lord. Allow me to pray for us. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful, Lord, that you have sent your word made flesh, Jesus Christ, your only son, to live a perfect life in our place, to die on the cross in our place, that we might be forgiven of our sins, that we might be restored to you, Lord, that we might be purchased back with an atoning sacrifice knowing, Lord, with full confidence and hope that our sins are forgiven in Him. What a blessing indeed, Lord. As we look to Jesus, the light of this world, what an incredible moment it must have been for this man who was blind to receive sight for the first time and then to receive spiritual sight, to see his Savior face to face. And, oh, Lord, we so look forward to that. Lord, this side of heaven we confess that life is sometimes incredibly difficult. And we know, Lord, that you are a miracle-working God, and so we ask that you would have mercy on us as a church, that you would heal the sick and restore, Lord, to those who are broken good health. But at the same time, Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts that we might trust you, not merely accepting the life which you have given us, but looking to Jesus as the light of our lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your work in us. We come to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this evening, and commit ourselves to you and ask that you would transform our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.